tonight. All right, let's open our Bibles and return to the book of Genesis. We'll be in Genesis chapter 2 this evening, making our way to verse 8 and following. We'll be actually be in verses 8 through verse 17, so we have another one of those times where not all the verses fit on the screen, so it'll really drive all the OCD people in the room just a little bit crazy, and you will even have to turn the page on your handouts together. We'll zoom in here in a moment on those verses, but we're in verse 8 to verse 17, and, and, but before we get to the verses we're at together this evening, I think it's good and wise for us, just to review for a moment, a little bit of where we came from, really going back to verse uh, 4 of our text together, because there's a phrase Really, a line, an important phrase, a line of demarcation in the Bibles, especially in Genesis, that we saw that kind of breaks apart the account. And and long before there were chapter and verse divisions, which are helpful in their own right at times, uh, to alert us that there's a new line of thought, the Bible, God's Word, inspired for us, gave us some inspired words or phrases to let us know there's there's a new theme now coming. And the word or the phrase that we looked at even last time and some of the notes are on the screen is, is that these are the generations or, and, and you really begin to see that there's a, a line here and uh, this phrase will come up time and time again throughout the book of Genesis, normally followed by what? Anybody remember? Genealogies. Genealogies. Now this is the only exception that this phrase is not followed by genealogies, but even as we note that, that's not really much of an exception. There's a reason why there's not a long list of names to follow this phrase this time. Why is that? Yeah, this is the beginning. This is literally the beginning. So there's no other names to include yet. There will be later. And so Genesis 2 verse 4 marks a move in the story. We are moving from talking about the creation at large, that began in chapter 1, verse 1, and flowed all the way to chapter 2, verse 3, and now we are narrowing our focus specifically to who? Man. The focus now becomes man. So chapter 1 and chapter 2 are intertwined by way of theme. They're both talking about creation. But in Genesis 1, it stresses something, and Genesis 2 stresses something different. And we can write these down on the, on the screen so that we can kind of get them because it is important for our review. Even as we're looking at them, we know that Genesis chapter 1 stresses that God is in control. Genesis 1, God is in control. Or we could say God is sovereign, God is powerful. All of those things that come into play with the idea that, that God is in control. But Genesis now, Genesis chapter 2 we, we note that the stressing of this chapter is God is personal. We could say God is extremely personal. So, chapter 1 stresses the transcendent nature of God. Genesis chapter 2 describes how personally and intimately he is involved in his creation. And these two chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 2, are deliberately set side by side at the beginning of our Bibles that we may see two wonderful aspects of God that will come to be repeated throughout the rest of Scripture. We see in 1, chapter 1, He is the one who is transcendent and powerful. That's who God is. We will come to discover that theme intertwined throughout the rest of the pages of Scripture. 
But chapter 1 certainly emphasizes the fact that God is transcendent and powerful. He is the one in control. And chapter 2, set side by side, parallel to chapter 1, stresses that he is the one who is caring and involved in the man that he made. And certainly we see that theme all throughout the rest of Scripture. But even as we noted in chapter 2, verse 4, we see that these are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created, and there was, a, there was a name for God that was now used that's really important for us, and it is the name Lord God. Anybody remember what is the name that's now being referenced, the two Hebrew names? The Lord is, of course, what name? The Lord is, of course, the name Yahweh, and the name God here being used is the name Elohim. Elohim. That's exactly right. Now, the name Yahweh here, this is the first time, this is the very first time that the name Yahweh is going to be used. What do we know, though, about the name Yahweh as it is given throughout the rest of the Old Testament? What do we know that, about that name, Yahweh? It's a very personal name. It's a very personal name, a very intimate name. It's a covenant-keeping God. Now, the name Elohim has already been used. In fact, it's the only name that's been used so far in chapter 1. What do we know to be true about the name Elohim? What is that emphasizing? It certainly emphasizes, in some sense, its plurality of God. God is triune. What else do we know about it? The creator, the all-powerful, transcendent God. And you'll find that this, we could say, double-barreled name of God, Lord God, is found throughout chapter 2. We saw it in chapter 2, verse 4, but look in chapter 2, verse 5. It says the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land uh, and all of that. We see that again in verse 7. We see that the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. In our text we'll look at here in a moment, we see it in verse 8. The the Lord God planted that. We see it again in verse 9. The Lord God, excuse me, that wasn't a good circle. We can do better than that. The the Lord God made it to spring up. We see it again in verse 15. If you have to turn the page to get there. In verse 15, you can see it there. In verse 15, the Lord God. We see it again in verse 16, the Lord God, and so on. You can see it again in verse 18. You can see it again in verse 19. I think you get the point. It just keeps coming up. And I won't, I'll stop because the name Lord God in chapter 2 and chapter 3 will now appear 20 times. Now, if God repeats something, what do we know to be true about that repetition? It's important. There's something that God's trying to communicate to us. What is he trying to communicate that? Now, to give more perspective, it appears 20 times in chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis. It did not appear in chapter 1. It then appears 20 times, that we could call it the double-barreled name, Lord God, 20 times in chapter 2 and 3. In the, in the rest of the first five books of the Bible, you know how many other times outside of chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis the name Lord God in that order appears? One other time. So there's an emphasis in chapter 2 and 3 that's pretty evident that God wants us to get. What is the emphasis that he wants us to not miss? I am the creator. I am the creator. That's the Elohim part, absolutely. And I am personal and caring. That's the Yahweh part. So right away, God wants us to know these truths, and they're illustrated. And why is that? Well, before we read our text, in the ancient world, 
remember, there were all kinds of different false gods. This is the context in which Moses is now writing, where they're in lands that are pervading with all kinds of false gods. But these false gods were normally one of two things. They were either cold, removed, and remote. They never engaged with people. If they did, people were their slaves. That was one kind of view of these false gods. Or the false gods were messy, carnal, and nasty creatures. And if they did interact with people, it was only to get whatever whims that they, the false gods, wanted out of those people. Those were the only kind of, in the great pantheon even of the Greek gods, uh, you can imagine, those, those categorically were the only two kinds of gods that they had. The, the cold and distant gods that you were scared of, in one sense, and then the, the other messy, carnal gods that you were scared of, but only because they behaved in so kind of mean ways in some ways. But here, in that context, where that's the kind of the, the mindset of, of, of godheads that they had, the true God is introduced. And, and the true God of Genesis 1 and 2, and really 3, stands in stark contrast to those false gods. He is the one who really does speak everything into existence. He is way more powerful than any of their supposed false gods. Yet at the exact same time, this powerful, transcendent God crafts man with his hands from the dirt and breathes into man the breaths of life. So there's a, there's a, there's a really powerful picture at play here that he is the Lord God. Before we move any further, if you are trusting in Christ today, you are trusting in the Lord God. You have the one who you can approach in prayers. That's the Lord. You have the one who is able to save your soul. You have also the one who sits on the highest throne in heaven. He is the Lord God. This is a God that is the only true God. And by the way, this is a God that only the true God could reveal. We can say that with some measure of confidence because history books don't explain gods this way. Mankind has all kinds of imaginations about sun gods and fish head gods and all kinds of weird things, but none explain themselves with this kind of parallelism between the two truths about who they are. This is a God that does not come from the figment of human imagination. You have a God who made it all, yet you have a God who cares for you. Now, sometimes I think as Christians who love the word, and understand the significance of what is about to take place in chapter 3, we run past chapter 2. And we rarely spend time in chapter 2. And I even noted that last time when we, we parsed out the verses we parsed out last time, there were a few that came up afterwards and said, I've, I've, I've read chapter 2, but I've never really parsed out those verses. And I think that's what we do. We, we parse out chapter 1, the creation of the world, and we parse out chapter 3 because we know the significance of what happens. Anybody know what happens in chapter 3? The fall. So it's really significant. And we kind of skip past chapter 2, don't we? And, and chapter 2 is there. I mean, nobody's denying, I hope, this evening that chapter 2 is not in the Bible. I mean, there it is in front of you. But we don't spend time there. It's really important. But Genesis 2 
is meant to show us something. And, and I'll put this at a heading there because this is the purpose for which God gives us Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is meant to reveal to you dignity. Actually, your innate dignity as a created man or woman. This is so important because so many people in the world run about trying to work out who they are and what their identity is. And identity even has become its own idol. And they're not coming back to their created dignity with which they are. And what Genesis 2 is meant to reveal to us is that your worth as a human is not found in the things that you do. And, and your worth as a human is not found in the things that you are interested in. And your worth as a human is not found in the way that you identify yourself. That is not what makes you worthy. That's not what gives you worth. That's not what makes you dignified. I think this is really important for Christians to understand, and many do. I mean, I, 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 some, some of the hardest things to read as a pastor, as a believer, not just as a pastor, are, are to read obituaries of people who, for years, people kind of assumed were Christians, and maybe they were, but then the people after them are reading their, or writing their obituary, and it writes, reads all about how their favorite sports team was this team, and how they worked at this job, and how they had these kids, and how they were married to this person, and it never talks about their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That, 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 those are the most tragic obituaries to read. Because that's not what gives that, if that individual was saved, none of that gives that individual worth. What gives them worth is what you were created for. God made you to be known by and to know him. You were made to bear his image. You were made to have a connection with God. That is what this double-barreled name is meant to convey in chapter 2. Yahweh Elohim created you to have a connection with him. That gives you dignity. That was, that's what gives you worth. You want to know who you are and what, you do, what you're supposed to do. Connect back to what God made you for. When you try to focus on all the other stuff and everything else around you, everything crumbles because your worth, if it's not connected to God, is worthless. So are you connected to God is the question. That's pretty worth it. So that brings us to our verses. That's all introduction because I think it's important for us to do that. Let's read our verses beginning um, now in verse 8. Beginning in verse 8. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedlam and onyx stone was there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is the Tigris, which flows out of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Now, I don't know about you, but 
Rarely have I ever heard a message that just focused on these verses, but they are in the Bible and they deserve our consideration this evening. As we're coming to them, I want you to focus, first of all, on, on this, this word, garden. There the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. This is unsurpassed, this garden is, by anything that comes after it. What these verses are trying to do as, as we open them is to show how unsurpassed this garden was in everything. So God has created man, and, and that's, what, that's what the verses above have really referenced. It's talking about uh, specifically the creation of man uh, and, and, and all that God did. And, and you can even see in those verses that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. So here is man, and, and he needs somewhere to live. And so God now, in these next verses, we see uh, not the creation of man, but the creation now of man's dwelling. Man's dwelling. We could even say his home, because we'll see exactly that's what he's doing. And, and as we read of man's dwelling, we are meant to stand back in awe of what this garden is. So God has created man in an intimate way. We saw that in verse 7. He formed man out of the dust of the ground. And I don't know if I really did a good job explaining that word formed. It's, a hard, it's even a hard word to really explain quite fully because it is used, that we mentioned in Jeremiah, that same word is used of a potter forming clay. But it's even more intimate than that. And, and it's, just, it's, it, it's lost a little bit in translation in English. But you, it just acknowledge that this word is meant to be a really close, personal word formed. And then to add closeness to that, he breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. And for those now that said, well, he created man and he just wound him up and put him there and then stepped back and he was done, God wasn't done. Now God's going to create something for man and he is going to provide for man something magnificent. And the magnificence of this is to show the dignity of man and the worth of man as God saw man. This is, this is God's perspective now of perfect man. This is prior to the fall. And God is saying this, is, this, this individual, individuals in a moment, are worthy of something. And so God steps in and he provides for them. And, and we see, first of all, that God provides space. God provides space for man. Not, not outer space, but space that he can spread out a little bit. Look at verse 8. It says this in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man... Uh, and there he put man whom he had formed. So the fruitful garden was made, and the garden of Eden, as we see it, was made for man. Man, the, 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 the man was not made for the garden. The garden was made for man. So God's going to do something. And he's going to build, and he's going to make this magnificent place that we now call Eden. What is Eden? Anybody know, before I answer it, what does the word Eden mean? Maybe you've heard it before. wanted to give you a chance. What's that? Perfection. Perfection. No. Delight. Who said that? 
Oh, there you go. Brent, do you have a Hebrew in the back, by the way? <laughs> okay, sometimes she does. But that is exactly right. It means delight. So this is the garden. We call it the Garden of Eden, but you could rightly call it the Garden of Delight. So this garden is a garden of, and, and really the word is more than that. It, it's supreme delight, you could even say. So this is a, a garden that is meant to be enjoyed. You think of all those ancient gardens that were made by kings, you know, uh, uh, in Babylon and the hanging gardens and all of those things. And all of those were made for those kings. These royalty, they would step out and they would walk around and it would be kind of just to reflect themselves. But here is something interesting. The king of kings makes a, a most, most breathtaking garden for man to delight in. Pretty magnificent. And it says in verse 8 that he, he actually goes a step further and he, and, he, and he puts man in the garden. And, and this word, this word now used for put, uh, really translates and could be saying the word, he rests him there. This is, this, is a, this is a picture of tranquility. This was, this was meant to be the place where he would be his home. This, this was meant to be a place of, of rest, of ease. Work would happen, as we noted last time, as we concluded, but not the sweat of the brow. This would be a delight. This would be a, an enjoyment. It's not as though they're sitting around you know, on the beach all day. They are moving and doing things, but there is a, a rest here. There is a, you could maybe translate it better, peace. And he puts man there. This is a place for man to just be to be man, to have worth, to have dignity, to be who he was meant to be. And so, so God provides for man a, a space on the globe to be man. This is, this is how man was supposed to be. And there's a, there's a lot of lessons immediately that can be learned, even as you study out the Garden of Eden. Immediately you're beginning to see what, what if I'm going to go back to who I am, what do I do? Well, this is how it is. And so God provides for them. And number two, not only does he provide space for man, but God also provides aesthetics, aesthetics and food, and food for man. Now, this next point may not, uh, it may wash over some of us because not all of us are chipping Joanna Gaines and, and going to make a room look really nice, Okay. And so art and beauty isn't for you. And, and, and that's probably me in that respect. My wife would certainly latch on to that first aspect of that and the aesthetic. But the second aspect of that may be more like what I would, uh, if I have a nice morsel of food that I can have in my mouth, like a good steak, I'm going to enjoy that. So the, the next aspect may be more my cup of tea than the aesthetic part. But everybody's painted left brain or right brain, and I don't know if, uh, if food and art have anything to do with the two being separated. I haven't studied that out. But we know immediately in verse 9, here's what's going to go on. And it says, and this is what, where we begin to see some, some fascinating things about what, what God is intending to provide for man. And it says, and out of the ground, the Lord made spring up every tree. So he's, he springs up. By the way, when, when, we, when we know uh, that he sprung it up, we noted this before, that, that God has created an already growing planet. Right? We talked about that in chapter 1. And specifically, these plants are growing up 
for two specific reasons. Why are these plants growing? What are the two specific reasons in the verse that God provides for man these plants? What are they? Number one is, it is pleasant to the sight. That, we could say, is number one. It is pleasant to the sight. What is number two? And, he adds, it is good for food. So number two is that it is good for food. So these plants spring up. Why? Well, one is that they're pleasant to look at. What what does the Garden of Delight, or the Garden of Eden, look like? I don't know. I think it was pretty nice. My, my dad, when he first went to his church in Indiana, they have since replaced this, um, but in their, in their baptistry, they had uh, like a Garden of Eden replica thing in their baptistry, and they actually even had a fountain that came off the wall that poured into the baptistry. It was quite something. Uh, it looked like it came from the early 60s, but it had been there for a while. It probably was built in the early 60s, and uh, it was quite distracting because the fountain would just run and you just hear, you know, all the gurgling and bubbling going on and things like that. And then they had to keep it clean with chlorine to make sure. And that was, you know, it's gone now. But I don't know if that was uh, exactly what the Garden of Eden looked like, but they were trying their best, I guess. But it was pleasant to look at. And number two, it was good for food. So God gives to man glorious things, And he provides for humanity's eyes and their tongues, interestingly enough. (laughs) He wants that. Is is there an aspect in which I can enjoy the beauty of nature and still reflect on the goodness of God? Absolutely. Any references in Scripture outside of these that we are in now that you don't have to give me the reference. You can just think of any verses that kind of reflect that. Psalm 19 in Song, Song of Solomon, Psalm 8 as well. Psalm 23 in some regard, absolutely. What's that? Psalm 103. There's a lot of psalms. Just think about, why is it always in the psalms? that it's, well, Not always, but there's a lot of psalms about that. Just think about who wrote many of them. David's out there watching sheep. What are you going to do all the rest of the time? Right? The look at this beautiful creation that God made. But also food. There's an enjoyment there that God gave, and there's references to that as well. And even, even analogies and allegories to Scripture being like honeycomb. These are, these, are, these are meant to be a delight in some regard. And this is God in his perfectness, again, creating this perfect garden of delights for his perfect man, and he provides for him these things. And number one, we already noted, he provided for him the, the space to have in the garden. This is for mankind to enjoy. And then these aesthetics and this food are there. And number three, we see that he provides a tree of life. The tree of life. And this tree of life is for man. It says, there, the, in verse 9, he provided for them. And he says, the, 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 tree, the tree of life was, was in the midst of the garden. Three, now, chapter 3, verse 22, will become an important reference. Chapter 3, verse 22, will become an important reference to this tree of life. 
Because in that, re- in that verse, we'll come to discover that the tree of life will provide for the people in this perfect paradise uh, eternal life. So, so right in the center of the garden, he provides for man the means to which man is eternally sustained. At this point, has death entered the picture? No. If the fall had not happened, would death have entered the picture? No. Why, after the fall, did they have to get kicked out of the Garden of Eden? This is why. This is is what's going on. And so, are you, before we move any further, are you getting the picture of what's described here? All that man needs is right at their fingertips. They have space, they have a place they can call home, they have things that they can enjoy that they can look at, that they can eat, that they have the means by which their lives are going to be sustained. This chapter now in these verses is a catalog, and it's a catalog of God creating man intimately in verse 7, and then beginning in verse 8, and we're only into verse 9, and what we're seeing is blessing stacked upon blessing, stacked upon blessing, stacked upon blessing. Why is God doing this? Because man matters to God. This is what, man was not created for all this. This was created for man. Man is of worth, of value, of dignity. And so God provides for him space. And God provides for him this aesthetics and, and these uh, foods. And God provides for him the tree of life. And number four, he's continuing to provide. And he provides these, we could, I'll call them sustaining rivers. And I'm not going to get into all of the name studies right now with you. Maybe we'll come back and look at them. I just I wanted to delve into it. But as we're about to read, you'll notice that these rivers, it says in verse 10, a river, a river flowed out of Eden to the water to, to water the garden, and it was divided into four rivers. And you notice these rivers that are coming up. And then he'll name them. But I want you to notice something special. I want to just kind of think about who's reading this for the first time. First of all, who's, who's the author of Genesis, the human author? If you say God, you're right. But who's the human author? <laughs> Moses, okay? And Moses is writing to the Jewish, the Jewish people, and specifically the nation of Israel at this point. Yeah. Now, when they are receiving this book, what has just transpired? What, where were they right when they got this book, or right after? They're in the desert. They've been wandering around for 40 years. Tom Burkett wore the hat for that. His hat says, um, men don't, real men don't ask for directions. And I was joking with him and said, you know, that was, you know why the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years? Because men didn't ask for directions then either. Okay? So here they are in the desert. What do you want when you're in the desert? Water. <laughs> so now Moses spends, beginning in verse 10, and then you find he goes all the way down to verse 14, and he's going to have all of the things that he could highlight in the Garden of Eden. Of everything that he could highlight, water. Why water? To, to, to a group of people in the desert, what is more important, a rose or water? <laughs> water. Water. So he's saying that this is an amazing river, and notice it says at verse 10 that it's a river, singular, 
that goes into the garden, and then it's divided into four rivers, plural, which makes it the most irrigated garden you can imagine. And if all of these references sprinkled throughout aren't enough, almost like icing on the cake, he adds some really interesting anecdotal things that you could spend a lot of time, and I encourage you to do so. But he just, he just goes ahead and he lets them know, and in addition to all that water, you've got gold, and you've got these other precious stones, and all of these things come together. And this illustrates for us that this land is a land of water, and it's a land of abundance. I mean, it's just impossible to imagine. This, this is a place that is flourishing. This is a place beyond their wildest dreams, especially for desert dwellers. <laughs> this, is a, this is an incredible place, and, it, and it, it is flowing with everything that you can dream of and things that you can't dream of. It's just beyond the scope of our imagination to consider the beauty of this garden. And yet, in the middle of that, look who gets to be the groundskeeper. I mean, this beautiful, well-flourished, ornate garden, and the Lord God took man and put him in the garden, and he is put there to work the garden and to keep the garden. And these these words, work and keep, appear numerous times throughout the Old Testament. Those words, in that order. Work and keep. And normally, when the words work and keep appear in the Old Testament, it is referring to, these words refer to, normally, spiritual, spiritual service. You'll see this in reference even to the priests working and keeping the tabernacle and then the temple. And there are two elements to it, obviously. There's the word work, and there's the word keep. And the word work really simply means serve. Uh, and it's often referred to our worship of service rendered to God. That's what it is. It's, it's a service to God, an act of worship. That's what work is. And, and the word keep that's used here, the word keep really refers to keeping his commandments or keeping his law, keeping his commandments, doing doing what he wants us to do. And that is an act of worship. So again, these people are meant to respond to the direction of God. And we're to understand as we read this that they are working and they are doing what they are doing and what they are working in the garden as worship to God. So how did Adam and Eve worship God? Well, we can say, well, how do we worship God? Well, we can worship God by being in his word. We worship God by being in prayer. We worship God by being a part of his church. But Adam and Eve didn't have any of those needs. They didn't have to pray in that regard. They could talk to God in the cool of the morning day by day. They didn't have church that hadn't been around yet. It was in God's plan, but it wasn't there. They didn't have the Bible. They didn't need it. They could just talk to the author. So how did they worship God? By attending the garden. So can I worship God in my workplace? 
Is that worship? Yes. What, what I do as God, or for God and in this earth, as my service, what I'm doing with the skills and abilities that God has given to me, and, and there's a, a litany of different skills that are represented in this room just based on different workplaces. Can you do that as a worship to God? Yes. Will good Christian workers stand out as a result? Yeah, normally. Uh, often that they'll happen. And, and I, don't, I don't think any Christian often goes into the workplace intending always to be that way. I don't think Christians, I, I know many good Christian men and women that have risen quickly through the ranks, and it's not just because they were trying to corporate, climb a corporate ladder necessarily. It's because they're, what they're doing in their workplace is because it's a worship to God. Does that mean that I'll be promoted? No. Can I still worship God as I am not promoted? Yes. What I do with my hands, I'm doing as a service for an audience of one. That's who I'm worshiping. So there's absolutely a part of that. How can I have dignity and worth as I work? I was so thankful. My, my first job was custodial for our church. They used to hire teenage guys, and we'd clean toilets and stuff. And I'm thankful for my first boss who taught us that lesson. And he basically would say, hey, listen, I want that toilet to sparkle, and it's not because I'm your boss that you should get that to sparkle. And he would, he would have all kinds of devotionals, like teaching us work ethic because of who we are meant to serve. I'm thankful for the lessons that I learned. And many of you have similar stories. And that's certainly what Adam and Eve are doing. And so God provides for them space and, and aesthetics and, and a tree of life and, and sustaining rivers that he's now allowing them to work and to, to govern and to continue to do these things. But there's still yet another element that God will do for man or give for man that he wants us to see, and that is, number five, not only all of those things, but he provides law. God gives to man law, and it is a good thing. Really? I thought, like, commandments and laws are bad, because I don't like to be told what to do. <laughs> but look at verse 16. Come with me to verse 16. It says in verse 16, that the Lord God... Here he is, he's giving to man all these things, and, and it says in verse 16, and the Lord God commanded man, saying, you, shall surely eat of the tree, you, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day of you eat it you shall surely die. So in a, in a perfect world, in the garden of beauty, there's the law. Now, to eat this fruit would be to open up a mindset of self-governance. And this is a mindset that determines to make its own moral decisions rather than following God. And what we are learning from creation's account is that we, to find worth and dignity, were made to follow the law of God. We, we were created for the purpose of following the king of kings. And when one is allowed to embrace a, self, a sense of self-governance, of self-will, of a desire to create their own moral path, not that there's any morality in creating your own morality, the end result is what? Death. 
Rebellion equals death. I mean, Genesis 3 and 4 will unfold that in full. And so he says that in verse 17, there's this tree, and he, and he names the tree. This tree is named the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's the tree. At the moment the fruit is consumed, all of humanity will have two things. That which is designed to be good remains in you. But the compulsion to do evil and to reject God is now embedded in you and swallowing out what you were designed for. Can God still save you? (laughs) God is graciously here providing a law as a means of warning. This is a protection. In order to protect man, he put the gardener on high alert. This is a kind provision. This is not an evil God. You, you can have everything else, everything else at your fingertips. You can have that. I want you to enjoy that. This is for you. This will give you worth. This is what I want for you. But this thing, Psalm 1 verse 2 said, blessed is the man who delights in what? In the law of the Lord. Does does the government require seat belts for our children because they hate us? Right? No. Why is that a law? Because they want to protect our most vulnerable. They want our kids to be safe. Is that unkind of them? Our kids might sometimes feel like it is, right? But they're doing that because I know it's kind of weird to say, the government loves you. I don't know if all their laws are exactly that way, but that was my first example that came to my mind. Maybe a better one would be for, for your kids, right? I, my mom used to have a rule in our house, I've told you before, don't touch the wood stove. And we, is that because mom didn't love us, that she didn't want us to do that? No, it's because she loved us that there was that law. It is not an unkind God to do that. It is a law of love, to protect man. You can have all of this. You can't have this. Is that, is that not our hearts, though, by the way? Can you just pause for a moment and just reflect in your own life on all of the things that God, in his good, abundant grace, has given to you? What a blessing that is. Why is it that we are still consumed with what we don't have? Rebecca? It's true, too. Absolutely. Yeah, Rebecca said, sometimes you can just pause and thank God for God not giving you the things you really wanted. <laughs> and that's also true, just, just in your own reflections, in your own life. This is a good providential blessing. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, your word, your law, that word is the same word there, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's the same word that's being used. Your, your law is guiding me. So here's a question. How do you feel about the law of God? Do you love the law or do you hate the law of God? 
Do you, do you see God as heavy-handed by declaring certain things as sin? Or do you see it as a good thing? Do you believe that God is right and the creator to define what is morally acceptable and what is morally unacceptable? Or do you wish that God had stayed out and let us define it? And those, those kind of questions really become very telling questions on whether or not you're a believer or an unbeliever. But God is providing for man, and that's what I want us to end as we focus on. He is, he is giving to man in this perfect environment space, aesthetics and food, a tree of life, sustaining rivers. We could have added another point. A job. <laughs> He's the gardener. The law. All to point out something that is, that is uniquely true about man that stays true forever. Man has worth. Man is Man has the eye of God upon him. When you were born, the Bible says God knitted you together in your mother's womb. He cared about you. The Bible says he knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows you before eternity began. He, all of these pictures and, and phrases to illustrate the truth that so many are, are clamoring for and tripping over themselves to try to discover. They just want to know, do I matter? And the answer, according to the Bible, is you do, but you have a problem. Do you live in the Garden of Eden? (laughs) I don't. And if you think you do, I don't know if we can call someone to help you out this evening. (laughs) Or you can just turn on the news this evening and you'll discover that it probably isn't the Garden of Eden. There's a problem, and, and we haven't even gotten to the problem yet. And, and sometimes, again, this is why I think us as, as, as believers who so love the Word, we, we know what's coming in chapter 3, so we skip to, we go from chapter 1, God created everything, to chapter 3, we messed it all up. But we, we miss chapter 2, and we miss exactly what we messed up. Do, do you see the calamity of sin now more fully? Look at what was destroyed as sin. And it was just eating a fruit. That's how grotesque sin is. That's our problem. But God still loves the worth of man that when sin enters in, God immediately has a plan to fix broken creation. God wants to save your soul. Why does God desire that all sinners come to repentance? Why does God want every man, woman, and child to come to a saving knowledge of his son? Why is that so important that he will spend the rest of time up to now continuing to win lost souls to himself? Why is that so important to God? Because you have worth to God. You have dignity to God. That's the point that's coming out in full as we read even of this garden that God created for the first man. Questions, comments as we close this evening? Linda. Uh, question back to you were talking about Lord. Yes, sure. Yes. Isn't that also kind of talking about Jesus as Lord? So the word that's used, yeah, so when, when we see Jesus referenced as Lord, in, in the New Testament, 
That is a, a word that's actually more akin to the word Adonai in the Old Testament, not Yahweh. So Adonai in the Old Testament is L-O-R-D, like that, but there is a helpful usage in English Bibles, not exclusively, but most often, L-O-R-D in all capitals is Yahweh, whereas L-O-R-D, but O-R-D are not capitalized, is Adonai, and Adonai means master and lord of all. So when we come over to the Acts, you're right, Jesus is referred to in Acts, call upon the name of the Lord, and you'll be saved, and that is actually a reference to Adonai, and Adonai means master and Lord of all. So when, when we call upon Jesus, what we're saying is, you are the Lord of my life, meaning you are the master of my life. I have tried to live my life my way. I'm going to repent of my pursuit of self. I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to pursue you. That's what repentance is. That's what Lord is. So it does get a little bit confusing, I get that, because it is the, it's still Lord, both of them are Lord, yeah. I guess they came to the Trinity. Sure. Yes. Yes. But, but in the New Testament, when it says Lord, it's normally a reference to Adonai in the New Testament. Yep. Yeah. Other questions? Those are good ones. Yes, in the back. Um, in verse 17, it uh, talks about how God, he forbid the man from uh, eating from the uh, tree of knowledge of good. Mm-hmm. Good and evil, mm-hmm. and it doesn't mention the tree of life. Sure. Um, so was the man was he able to eat from the tree of life? That and that is a, is a fascinating so question in its own right. I. Or another we of questions. That's a good one. Let me steal on that one. I don't know if I have a good answer for you right now. Yeah. It seems. Yeah. It said every tree. Every tree available except for one. Yeah. Linda. That would be my interpretation, yeah. He did say every other tree except for this one, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he put the angels to guard the garden so they wouldn't come back in. That's right. There, there's all kinds of speculation. Does that mean it's still there? We just can't get into it? Is that the Bermuda Triangle? All right, okay, I, I don't... <laughs> I don't know what, you know, but, but we do know we're not getting back in. I think that's the main point. Yes. Yeah. The tree of life. Yes, we do. In Revelation 22, we, we see the tree of life again. Yes. Did God give the comment only to Adam or to both? <laughs> Did God give this rule? I, I, it was to both. We know that because Eve is also held responsible for a violation of that law. And so she knew about this raw as well as Adam. Yep. Yeah. Yes. So um, I, was, uh, I was looking at the rivers, and of course we know the Euphrates and we know the Tigris. I'm not familiar with the other two. I know. And I wish we would have had more time to go over those. Maybe we can come back. Because I didn't even take the time to study because I was studying out this, and then I realized we're going to run out of time quickly. But that would be a fun study even in itself, I'm sure. Rebecca? She is not pregnant yet. But we know she would have known it because God held her responsible for the violation of it. So she had to have known it. She had to know it. Sure, sure. I, I think that's not a stretch to say that. Yeah. I had, now, now the fun speculative question, though, is what was that fruit? Right? You know? I had a professor that he, he said, in kind of tongue-in-cheek, he wasn't being serious, that it had to have been a banana because in his estimation, a, a banana is the perfect fruit. 
Yeah, because it, it has its own covering to keep it from being dirty, right? And then you can peel it, and then it's easily shareable, because you can just break it in half, and you can each have a part. So in his estimation, it was the perfect fruit for that. Uh, he was being, he was teasing about that. I don't, yeah, whatever it was, yeah. Oh, I get it. There you go. Nice pun there. Harry? This one's probably going to throw a curveball in there, too. But um, why would God create mm-hmm. the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I've heard several thoughts on that. Sure. Everything from, well, God wanted to give me a choice to maybe there's a reason for it. But what are your thoughts on that? I know we're, we're running out of time. Yeah. That is a, let's spend the rest of our evening here uh, tonight. Uh, If you just heard his question, why did God create the tree of knowledge of good and evil? And the reason, Harry, it's hard to answer is because we aren't told the answer. We are left to speculation. Um, we, We are not told the answer. We know the reality that it was created. We know the result of what happens when it was. But we are not ultimately told. So any answer that I'm going to give you would be speculative which you get into the realm of dangerous when you go there. I can speculate, though, so we'll, we'll get in the realm of dangerous. I, I would be of the persuasion that, that God did not create man to be automatons that just do his bidding. And, and, and we see that what, what God gets worth from is when man chooses to, to respond to him, right? And for this reason, I wouldn't adhere to Calvinistic teaching where God basically, you know, can, it, it, it almost leans itself and lends itself to this idea that it's every, it man's almost robotic and, and, you know, we don't have a choice in any of this matter. It does, it does appear that God wanted man to have choices from the beginning. And I know we're getting to speculation because it doesn't tell us exactly why he created it, but I don't think it's far stretched to say, as far as other texts of Scripture are concerned, that God does want man to choose righteousness. And, and we find that theme throughout the rest of the pages of Scripture. There, there's a cry for man to choose right. And, and even a cry, you, you've seen, you know, you, you even see the prophets like uh, where in, in Joshua and others where they're saying, choose you this day. And, and Joshua's not the only one that says that, but that's certainly one of them. Who you will serve? Are you gonna, which one are you going to choose? And, and Jesus himself will come later and say, you can't serve God and money. And all of these choices are being laid before man. So from the beginning, there's these choices, and they all come down to good versus evil. And God's call is, choose good. But God's also clear, if you choose evil, here's the result. Look at how dark and wicked we are, by the way. God makes it so clear. Choose good, here's heaven, right? I I want you there. Jesus even goes so far as to say, and I can't even give you all the details because if I did, you won't want to live here anymore. That's how amazing it is. Choose that. But if you don't, Jesus is also very clear. This is how. Here we have at the beginning. Look at all this that you have before you. It is a delight. But if you choose evil, it will be death. But there is a choice. Lori? There are a few questions, like why did he create this particular tree, Mm -hmm. that can only be answered by saying God is God. That's right. There are certain things in life that are only answered when say God is God. And I am comfortable in that arena. I mean, I I put in my, in my my beliefs I'd say, because I just brought up Calvinism, but I'll go ahead and say, like, if I teach on sovereignty, there are some in the congregation that will say, see, he's a Calvinist. If I teach on the free will of man, there'll be others in the congregation that say, see, he's an Arminian. And I've always said, I'm comfortable with that. I, I am neither, 
uh, and I'm not both. So I, I, I'm okay with, if you're going to label me, you're the one making those labels. I am not attempting to make those labels on my own because there are things that we cannot understand in God. What I can is I can trust what God's word has to say. Yep. Secret things belong to the Lord. The Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things which are revealed belong to us, that we may delight in his law. That's, that's pretty amazing. That's wonderful truth. Let's close on that. Thank you, Bobby. Let's close. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can study it out and get a full and fresh idea of what you are seeking to convey to us, your children. Lord, may we uh, delight in you. And Lord, we know that you give us worth because you created us with dignity and honor and love. And Lord, may we reflect back to you the worth that is worthy of you. We pray this in your name.